I've had the privilege of dedicating this little child unto the Lord. And in that dedication, as you heard, both parents and this congregation made a promise that the little child would be brought up in the admonition of the Lord. The parents, of course, will play their part at home in instructing and praying for this child and doing all that they can uh, so that he will grow up knowing about the Lord Jesus. We in this congregation, we will play our part through the tremendous work of the Sunday school teachers and all that they do to teach and to train uh, these little ones in the truths of Christianity in a, in, a, in a simple, fundamental way. Children from primary school age and upwards are educated uh, through, I suppose, a national curriculum uh, so that they would be equipped and uh, complete to work in this modern world that we live in. As parents, all of us try to instill into our children proper values and ethics and manners and try to build up their character so that they would grow up to be a, a good citizen, uh, among many other things. Uh, we're also required by law uh, to look after children bodily, physically, and mentally. And so uh, government uh, makes that a must that we have to do these things, and rightly so. We want to look after children physically and mentally and all the rest of it. But what about the spirit? What about that part of our lives, whether as a child or an adult, that probes the deeper questions of life? Questions like, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Does God exist? Is there a thing called heaven? All of these questions need to be answered. A mother was asked by her young son one day, Mom, where did I come from and where am I going? And so to try to answer that in a very simple way, she says, well, we came from dust and whenever we die, we go back to dust. So the next night, before he got into bed, he noticed dust underneath the bed. So he said to his mom, Mom, there's somebody underneath my bed, and I don't know whether they're coming or going. <laughs> so therefore, it will come to no surprise to any of us today to know that we as a church and you as Christian parents teach our children the truths of Christianity. We believe that Christianity is unique. It is entirely different than any other religion. It's life-changing. It's liberating. 2,000 years of Christianity has shaped much of this world. Trust me when I say that women and children in particular have greatly benefited from Christianity in spite of what modernists would try to tell us today. Look at any other religion and look at women and children within that religion and compare it to Christianity, and it's like light and dark, isn't it? There's something about Christianity that's liberating, truly liberating, and it's such a blessing to people's lives. What makes Christianity so unique, so singularly special? Why are our claims different than other faiths? 
No other religion has a savior. No other religion has a cross. No other religion has the gospel. It is uniquely different. The cross is the crux of Christianity. Take away the cross and Christianity is powerless. It's impotent. Take away the cross, take away the gospel, and what have you got? You've got a religion that cannot transform a life. It can end form. It can reform, but it can't transform. Christianity transforms people's lives. A preacher one day was out in the square preaching in the open air, and a crowd gathered around him. And there was a humanist in the crowd, and he decided to hackle the preacher. And so he looked around the crowd, and he saw an old man dressed in an old suit, and he was disheveled and dirty looking, and he said, preacher, he says, I'm a humanist. I don't believe in God at all. But he says, as a humanist, he says, I can put a new suit of clothes on that old man over there. And the preacher says, that's nothing. He says, I believe in Christ, and Christ can put a new man on that old suit of clothes over there. <laughs> There's a difference. Christ, Christianity, can transform a life. There are those today who would denounce all religions in general and Christianity in particular. We hear many voices today who saying that Christianity poisons a person, that it dulls their intellect, that you cannot be scientific and be a Christian at the same time. You can't be scientific and believe that God created this whole world. You can't, that just doesn't compute, they say. But isn't it interesting that all of the, almost all of the great scientists in the past and not a few in the present actually are those who believed in the God of the Bible. Those who believed that God did create this world in an organized, designed way. And that's what influenced them as scientists. That's what gave them the drive to discover and to, and to see God's great creation and to wonder at it. Why did God make things this way? And, and pursuing what they felt was God's creation, out of that came great inventions. Out of that came many of the things that we take for granted today. By the way, believing evolution doesn't create anything. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't invent anything. It doesn't make anything. But believing in God as creator, believing in the God of the Bible, that's what motivated many of these great scientists. So why do we claim that Christianity is unique? Christianity is unique because Christ is unique. Jesus was not merely some philosophic, moralistic exemplar, some sage or some prophet 2,000 years ago. He was and he is the Son of God. He wasn't a man who became the Son of God. He was Son of God who became a man, the God-man, who took upon himself human flesh, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. We see that in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 1, whenever you read the Advent story. And you see how Mary said to the angel, how can this be? When he told her that she was going to bear this 
child, this Son of God, the Messiah. How can this be, seeing I know not a man? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. God will overshadow you. And then that which is born of you will be the Son of God. Miraculous, supernatural, different than anything else. His birth was unique. Somebody said he was born like any other man, yet born like no other man. Technically speaking, of course, we know that it wasn't his birth per se that was miraculous, but his conception. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But he was literally, technically born like every other child. He was born like this little child today was born in the womb of his mother. And yet, it was a miracle above all miracles how he was conceived. And so his, his birth in that sense was absolutely unique. His life was unique. Twelve years old, sitting in the temple with all of the theologians of his day, answering and asking them the most profound questions. It must have amazed them. Not just that he could memorize Scripture, because all Jewish children growing up were, were taught to memorize Scripture, probably could memorize whole chapters, if not whole books. But the depth of his questioning must have amazed them. No, what amazes me is that, that Christ's siblings that grew up around him and saw his perfect life, and they must have at times been amazed at his profound thinking and the things that he must have talked about, and yet they did not believe in him to be the Christ until after his resurrection. What must have been like for him growing up, living a perfect life, Never send anything ever wrong, ever. <laughs> That's hard for us to understand that, isn't it? But that was Christ. That was the Son of God. Never man spoke like this man. The words that came from his mouth were gracious words. They had never heard anybody ever speaking like Jesus. He spoke with authority, not as the scribes. He spoke from his own authority. The scribe was always appealing to somebody else, some other rabbi in the past. You say, but I say unto you. He spoke from his own authority. His miracles. He made the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak. He turned water into wine. He walked on water. I mean, over and over and over again, when you read the Gospels, you see this miraculous life. No one else ever did the things that he did. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, there was people raised from the dead in the Old Testament. Jesus already had raised at least two from the dead before that. But by this time, he stinketh. He's been dead four days already. What a creative miracle. What power was able to cause Lazarus to walk out of that tomb. This meant his life was unique. His death was unique. 
You know, that hardened criminal at his side. In the end, even though at the beginning he cursed Jesus, but in the end, because of the events around the cross and because how Jesus handled himself on the cross, he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knew there was something different about this man in the middle. That Roman executioner probably had executed hundreds of prisoners in his lifetime, but never one like this. He had stood in that hill many, many times executing prisoners, but never did he see the sun refuse to shine for three hours. People, you know, say, well, that was an eclipse. Eclipse only of the sun only lasts minutes. Just several minutes at most. This was three hours. The sun refused to shine. Could you imagine what the atmosphere must have been like? Suddenly, it would get colder. And even an eclipse, in a natural eclipse, the atmosphere changes. The birds stop singing. They think it's nighttime. It's time to go to bed. Can you imagine for three hours? Could you imagine people looking, wondering, what is this? And not only that, the ground beginning to rumble and shake. And that curtain in the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. No wonder that Roman executioner said, surely this is the Son of God. His death was unique. Consider for a moment. You maybe have some in your bookshelves at home. Consider a biography. The life story of someone. And a biography typically will begin at the beginning. You know, when somebody was born in their early childhood and then their maybe young adult life, with the schools they went to, the education they had, and then maybe later on who they married or the business or the profession they took up and then their latter life and so forth and their accomplishments and achievements. And, and then when they died, their death may take up maybe just a few pages of the biography. If it was a sudden death or an or a assassination or a murder or a tragic accident, if the story was worthy of it, maybe it would take up a whole chapter. But that would be all. But in the four Gospels, which effectively is the biography of Jesus Christ on earth, written by the four Gospel writers, isn't it amazing that almost half of it, almost half of the Gospels is taken up with his death the few days before he went to the cross, just literally a few days. I mean, most of John's taken up with that on its own. Just a few days before he went to his death on the cross and then his resurrection that very short period of his life, almost half of the Gospels is taken up with that. Why? Why? Because his death was so unique. Jesus knew that he was going to die. He knew that's why he came to this earth. He knew that his death was absolutely certain. None of us know the day of our death. Sure we don't. 
But he knew. Not only that, he knew how he was going to die. And all of his life on earth, he lived with that knowledge. He knew how he was going to die. And what a horrible death he had to die. Here's what he said in Mark 8, 31. Remember, Peter had just said who he was. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. But listen to what Jesus said in Mark 8, 31. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. How it was going to happen. And what was going to happen afterwards. Jesus knew that his death would fulfill scripture. Luke 24, 25. Remember the two on the road to Emmaus? And how their eyes was beholden that they didn't recognize him at the start. And he asked them, well, basically, why have you got such a big long face? I'm paraphrasing. They said, are you a stranger here? Do you, do you not know what's been going on? Do you not know but what happened to Jesus of Nazareth? Do you not know these things? And then it says, he said, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Isn't that wonderful? Imagine him growing up. Imagine him in his early teens, reading those scriptures from Isaiah and from the Psalms, all those messianic scriptures, knowing that was speaking of him personally, knowing what he was going to go through personally. And all of those years, he would read that and know that was about himself. No wonder he was able to expound onto them all of those things concerning himself. Jesus knew that his death was the Father's will for him. And you know today that's a big, big controversial thing. The fact that the Father caused Jesus to go to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins. There are those today who say, that's not a God of love. That's not a God of love to allow his son to do that. But actually, that is a God of love. That shows the love that God had got for us, that he would allow his own son to go to the cross to die in our place. That's true love. That's real love. But Jesus said in John 10, 17, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. For this reason the Father loves me, that I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. In Isaiah 53, verse 4 and verse 10, it's made very, very, very clear that it was the Father's <laughs> will for His Son to go to the cross. You read those scriptures, it's clear and it's plain. Jesus read them. Jesus knew them. So he knew all along what was going to happen. Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible to thee. 
Take away this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. Jesus knew that his death was the Father's will. Jesus knew that he'd have to lay down his life voluntarily. John 10, 18, he said, No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. Did you note that? No one takes it from me. Now, in Acts, when Peter's preaching that first great sermon, he looks out over that crowd and he talks about Christ, whom you crucified. In fact, a few pages over, he does the same. Stephen, in his martyrdom, says the same thing, calls them murderers. And it is true that physically they were the ones that handed him over to the Roman authorities. Physically, it was the Roman authorities who put him on the cross. Physically, it was those executioners that drove the nails into his hand and stuck the spear into his side. But above and beyond all of that, he knew that he was still in control of his life. That at any moment, he could have stopped it at any moment. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. And he laid down his life voluntarily. No one takes my life. I give my life. During his trial, he could have walked away from that. Remember one time when they wanted to take him up and they wanted to throw him over the brow of the hill and he just walked through them in the midst because it wasn't his time. And that wasn't the way he was to die. But when it came to the cross, it was Jesus who went to Jerusalem. It was Jesus who put himself in the lion's den, so to speak. The disciples didn't want to go because they were frightened. But Jesus deliberately went. He set his face as a flint because he knew what he had to do. But he knew he was in full control. And he gave his life. He says, no man took it, I gave it. I voluntarily laid it down. So in that sense, he wasn't a victim. He was a victor. He gave his life for us. Christianity is unique because of the cross. In Galatians 6, 14, the apostle Paul says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've often said that no other religion boasts in an instrument of death. You're not going to see a gallows on top of a mosque. You're not going to see an electric chair on top of a synagogue. But very often you'll see a cross on top of a church. And it's an instrument of death. We don't think about it that way. And the world probably no longer thinks about it that way. It's just an ornament, it's a piece of jewelry, it's whatever. But it's an instrument of death. Those people in the first century would be horrified. Be horrified to think that us in the 21st century would look at a cross 
and say we boast in the cross. Because in their day, it was a bloody, torturous death. What's to boast in? Of course, when Paul says, I boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, he was talking about the message of the cross, what the cross means. That's what he boasted in. And that's what we boast in, isn't it? Because only through his death on the cross, only through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ can we be saved. That's what we boast in. So Paul boasted in the message of the cross. Let me just read a couple of scriptures here, again from the New Living Translation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Dear brothers, even when I first came to you, I didn't use lofty words and brilliant ideas to tell you about God's message. For I decided that I should only speak of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. So he said to these Galatians, when I, when I, when I come to you, I, re I really made up my mind. I, I'm, not I, I'm just going to just make it plain and simple, right in your face. Jesus died for you on the cross. Isn't it the truth that most evangelists preach the simplest message you've ever heard? Isn't that the truth? You know, pastors and teachers, we like to go into all the background. The evangelist just comes out and he just makes it plain and simple, right in your face. Jesus died for you on the cross. He makes it so simple that even a child can understand it. Paul says, that's the way I'm coming to you, Galatians. Of course, Paul, he, I mean, he was a theologian. Peter one time says, Paul says things hard to understand. So if he wanted, he could have been very highly theological. But he says to you, Galatians, I'm just going to preach Christ crucified. I'm going to make it right simple for you. So there's no mistake in it. And then, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And even my preaching sounds poor, for I do not fill my sermons with profound words and high-sounding ideas for fear of diluting the mighty power there is in the simple message of the cross of Christ. I know very well how foolish it sounds to those who are lost when they hear that Jesus died to save them. But we who are saved recognize this message as the very power of God. For God says, I will destroy all human plans of salvation, no matter how wise they seem to be, and ignore the best ideas of men, and even the most brilliant of them. So what about these wise men, these scholars, these brilliant debaters of the world's great affairs? God has made them all to look foolish and have shown their wisdom to be useless nonsense. For God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never find God through human brilliance. And then he stepped in and saved all those who believed his message, which the world calls foolish and silly. It seems foolish to the Jews because they want a sign from heaven as proof what is preached is true. It is foolish to the Gentiles because they believe only what agrees with their philosophy and seems wise to them. So when we preach about Christ dying to save them, the Jews are offended. The Gentiles says it's all nonsense, but God has opened the eyes of those who are called to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, to see that Christ is the mighty power of God to save them. Christ himself is the center of God's wise plan for their salvation. The so-called foolish plan of God is far wiser than the wisest plan of the wisest men. And God in his weakness, Christ dying on the cross, is far stronger than any man. Ah, see, that's right at the very heart of the Christian message. This is what makes Christianity unique because of the cross. 
900 years before Christ, the psalmist David wrote Psalm 22. And if you read Psalm 22, he had no idea how messianic that would be. He had no idea 900 years before Christ came how that would absolutely perfectly show Christ on the cross. It's a wonderful psalm. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah had no idea when he wrote Isaiah 53 how perfectly that would speak of Christ on the cross. But God knew. And the Holy Spirit, who's the author of Scripture, he knew. And so it's there. So we can look back after all those years and say, you see, God had planned it right from the very beginning, even away from Genesis, but the one who would bruise the head of the serpent. All Christianity, Christianity is unique because of the cross. Christianity is unique because of grace. Let us finish with this this morning. All other religions are works-based. Works-based. Religion has to earn, it has to merit, it has to work for its salvation. The trouble is, it leads to a tendency of either pride or despair. Other people will say, have I done enough? Or, I have done enough. Either despair or pride. That's what it leads to. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, it is by grace that you're saved through faith. Not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of our works, so that no one can boast. Paul in Acts 20, 24 calls it the gospel of the grace of God. This morning you could read scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture about the grace of God and you never would ever get to the bottom of his grace. It is so wide, it is so deep, it's so vast, it's so great and that's what makes our gospel unique. Religion doesn't have that. Religion has to work and work and earn and earn and work and work and earn and earn. And either that will lead to pride, I've done enough, I am enough, or it will lead to despair, have I done enough, could I ever be enough? But grace comes in and says, you never can do enough and you never can be enough. I don't want you to do that. I want you to accept by faith my undeserved favor. And just receive that, that's my grace. If you receive that, and receive my son, you'll be saved. It's a simple message, isn't it? It's a wonderful message, but this is what makes it unique. No wonder Satan hates the gospel. No wonder he fights against it. He wants men and women to work, 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 work. And God says, no, just accept my grace. I've done the work. My son's paid the price. You can't add to that. Just receive it and be saved. And that's a simple thing, except you become as little children you cannot enter the kingdom. Kenneth, Kenneth Woos said this, Do this and live, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word grace does bring, it bids me fly, 
but gives me wings. Grace give you better wings than Red Bull does. <laughs> It'll give you spiritual wings that you can soar with God. Amen? So, what's so unique about Christianity? There's a lot of things unique about it. Aren't you glad that you know Christ today? He's our Savior today. If you put your trust in Him, He's your Lord and Savior. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We'd never been good enough. We just had to bend our knee and say, Lord, you've done the work. And we receive your Son. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the marvelous truths of your gospel. We thank you that it is still the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Lord, it's not that we're better than anybody else. It's just that we're better off because of what Christ has done for us and because we have seen that and have received that. So we give you thanks, Lord, in our weaknesses, in our humanity, in all of our faults and our feelings, we put our trust in the Son of God for our salvation. So we bless you for that today. Thank you, Lord, for this congregation. And thank you, Lord, for the family and friends, Lord, of Stephen and Rebecca and this little family that's come here today to dedicate their child. And we pray that you'll bless them. We pray, Lord, that you'll encourage and strengthen their hearts. We pray, Lord, that they'll go on serving you and knowing you and loving you. And we bless you for them. Lord, would you bless your servant tonight as he comes. We thank you for the work that he's doing in that place, Lord, those army camps with those young soldiers. We thank you for his influence using the gospel, using the scriptures to minister into their lives. Thank you for his boldness and his confidence and his courage to do it. Lord, bless him as he shares these things with us this evening. Bless his wife, Tulsi, and the little children also, the family, Lord God. So we give you thanks for this day. Thank you for all that's happened. We pray, Lord, we, we love the house of God, and we pray as we come together in your presence, Lord, that you will have something for us to touch our lives, to make us more into the image of the Lord Jesus. So we give you thanks, and we give you honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.